of the things we're seeing is a change in view of transportation as an ecosystem. So now when people have that scenario where the bike dock's right there, it's raining, I have five minutes until the bus, or I can walk, they're actually taking the time to make that choice and weighing pros and cons with price and options. And that's been one of the real benefits we've seen of transportation innovation recently is that we're seeing, particularly in urban areas, more options there. And we're only going to see this kind of continue to grow as we start to see things have more options regarding how do I get from point A to point B, depending on how far I'm going, depending on what's available right now. And I think that's also where the dockless element can really come in handy of no longer, you know, do I have to be right where the docked bike share is if I want to use that? Or can I pick this bike up, ride it where I need to go and leave it there and let whoever needs to ride it somewhere else pick it up then? Welcome to the Mercatus Policy Download. I'm your host, Chad Reese. I am joined for our What's on Tap segment by co-host Kate Delanoy. And Kate, for us today, I have from Bell's Brewing their best brown ale. Say that 10 times fast. (laughs) I won't, but I do enjoy Bell, so I'm excited to try this one. Great. Well, while I am pouring that and we are tasting that, why don't you let us know what's going on at Mercatus this week? So we've got some really cool new research from Brent Scorup on flying cars. And Brent has the exciting news that flying cars may actually be closer than we think, which as I sit in DC traffic every single day to come into the office, cannot wait. Brent's paper really looks at auctioning airspace. And it sounds kind of wonky, but it's really important if we're going to make flying cars a reality because we have to figure out who owns the airspace. If we don't, Basically, you're talking about potential chaos as you have, you know, a million people in their flying cars now bumping around in the air. And then we have got a lot of stuff going on on one of the biggest topics, Amazon HQ2. So Michael Farron is our resident Amazon expert, and he has been crunching the numbers, really looking at costs and benefits and kind of the trade-offs that cities would be making if Amazon came to their city. So kind of looking at, okay, if Amazon HQ2 was there, what does that mean in terms of police officers that you're not getting because of the tax credits and things that you gave to them. And really kind of showing, you know, these are the decisions that cities had to make and cities that don't end up with HQ2 may actually be the winners. Right. So we see the the jobs that come in immediately and that's great and the construction benefit and that's great. We don't always necessarily see these other foregone opportunities that could have been pursued with those tax dollars. Well, why don't we move to a cheerier topic and chat about the best brown ale. You said you were familiar with Bell's. Have you had this one before? I have not had this one. I I like it. It's very nutty and autumnal. Ooh, I like it. Yes. So it's a little heavy, but I'm going to say this is a a solid choice. 3.5. Nice. Well, this comes sort of on the recommendation of our producer, Dallas. She gave me a lot of good ideas. I was not able to find what I think was her best idea, which I will save for a future episode and not reveal now. But she also suggested... Thanksgiving is coming up. Why not highlight something that would be a good Thanksgiving beer? I think the best brown is kind of one of those great, like you said, autumnal beers that's you know good for when it's a little bit cooler but not freezing outside. So I agree. I'm going to be a little bit more positive. I give this a 375 out of 5 stars. Kind of a good everyday choice. It's never going to steer you wrong. It's true. Well, I'm hosting this year for Thanksgiving, so I may have to stock up. 
Well, there you go. Consider this the formal suggestion. We will move on now to what I hope everyone is here for, which is an exciting conversation uh, along the lines of flying cars, actually. We're talking infrastructure and innovation. So we're going to be chatting with some state and local policy experts about how governors and mayors and city councils are dealing with transportation innovation and how we can change policy at the state and local level to really take advantage of those technologies so they don't ruin our cities, but they make them more livable and better for everyone. Sounds great. Well, thanks for having me. Cheers, Chad. Cheers. The policy world loves to talk about infrastructure. Support for infrastructure policy is often bipartisan, and it's almost assumed now that candidates running for office will use the phrase crumbling roads and bridges at some point during their campaigns. But there's another side to infrastructure that might be more interesting than those roads, bridges, and airports. And that's the infrastructure innovation that often happens at the state and local level. Given promising new technologies like dockless scooters or bicycles and driverless cars, it's easy to forget that ride-sharing apps like Uber and Lyft are still relatively new parts of how people get around. So today, I'm joined by three experts to talk about this new world of infrastructure needs, sometimes called Transportation 3.0. Specifically, we're going to be talking about how state and local policy interacts with these new issues. First, I'm happy to welcome Alex Baca to the show. Alex is the Engagement Director for the Coalition for Smarter Growth, where she works to promote walkable, inclusive, and transit-oriented communities in the Washington, D.C. area. Welcome, Alex. Thanks for having me. Next up, I'm pleased to have Emily Hamilton back on the show. Emily is a research fellow here at Mercatus, where she focuses on urban economics and land use policy. Welcome back, Emily. Thanks, Chad. Great to be here. And to round out the group today, we have Jennifer Huddleston-Skies. Jennifer is also a research fellow at Mercatus whose work covers the interactions between technology and the administrative state. Welcome aboard, Jennifer. Thanks for having me, Chad. So normally I like to start off with kind of like one big broad question that's designed to get everybody on the same page and, and kind of set the stage. I want to do something just a little bit different this time since we're talking about a broad issue umbrella where there are lots of little things going on. And this is just kind of like a open-ended priority question for you all. So imagine that each of you is the mayor of a medium to large sized city. What in this broad umbrella of infrastructure and technological innovation would be your number one priority as a policymaker right now? I would focus on allowing people to have flexibility, focus on making trips as quick and pleasant as possible. So not just prioritizing one type of transportation over another, but allowing flexibility that works for different people and different types of trips. I would be looking at the ways that a city could signal that they are open for entrepreneurship, that they are willing and excited to allow innovators to come and try and test different modes of transportation and making sure that a city is not getting locked into 20th century transportation options. We're on the verge of the biggest transportation renaissance since Henry Ford and the Model T. We're seeing things changing very rapidly in ways that we haven't seen in almost a century. And I would be making sure that my city was positioning itself to allow those people to come and innovate. So I care very deeply about access, and that can mean a whole bunch of different things. We don't have to deconstruct that <laughs> at this time. But, um, you know, in terms of not just getting people where they need to go physically, but sort of what does mobility look like, whether that's economic or social, and, you know, all of those ways that you can move around both like physically as a person and in other fashions. So thinking very deeply and seriously about access for your residents and people who live there and making sure that things are, you know, if you want to think of the people who live in your city as users, you know, what needs to work for them to have a good user experience and where they live. 
I think those are really nice, broad issue areas for us to kind of start talking about. Now, maybe we can dive into some of the specific technologies so we can give our listeners some examples. And I guess the first one that comes to my mind is the dockless scooter phenomenon. So in D.C., we're very familiar with it. Uh, I know in my neighborhood, there are protected bike lanes where I see far more scooters now than I actually see bikes. And of course, I'm sure some of us have had to like step over them because they've just been deposited in, in the sidewalk. I'm curious in your all's experience, is this as big a deal as it seems? Or is this just sort of a, oh, this is a fun new toy, it'll be around for a little bit? Is this really a policy issue we're dealing with? Or is this just something that happens and it may fade away in a couple of months? I mean, I think that it's not so much scooters inherently being scooters, but sort of what what they are, which is a new type of device that moves predominantly at a speed that's very different from cars, right? So, like, I know that sounds like super wonky, but we went from, like, pedal bike share to, you know, pedal dockless bike share, you know, away from docked bike share to, you know, to e-bikes to scooters in a matter of months, right, in terms of like what people were actually seeing. So I've always encouraged, you know, in the conversations that I've had about this previously is for, you know, if there's going to be regulations around this stuff, and there will be, I mean, it's not like there won't be, but in the sort of crafting of that, to think more about concepts rather than companies themselves or specific products. Um, so it's not Lime versus Spin versus Jump versus Capital Bike Share versus like whatever comes into the market next, because you kind of don't know what that's going to be. But we can see that people are grafting onto these new options and they do physically move in a different way than, you know, both walking, both taking a bus, taking a train and driving. Two points that Alex has made earlier about accessibility. One of the things that's really exciting about these scooters is that they're really solving this last mile problem, that part of transportation that's not really covered between either where you may get off a bus and need to get to home or work or the store and, you know, normally would have to walk or figure out another solution. This is providing people with a cheap, clean, affordable option. The scooter is also just kind of sprung up in an entrepreneurial effort. This is a technology that's been around for 30 years, even more in some cases. But we saw entrepreneurs seeing a problem that consumers have thinking of a way they could use both existing technology and some new innovation to solve this problem. And we saw great consumer response. So the scooters may end up being a fad in 10 years. But I think what we've seen is that there is an entrepreneurship area in transportation innovation for the last mile if cities and states will let innovators solve that problem. I think a lot of the scooter hysteria has been people just reacting against something new and different and being averse to anything changing in their neighborhoods. But I think the real issue that they do present sometimes is there isn't a good place to store them. And cities typically dedicate tons of public space to storing cars. And with dockless bikes and scooters coming along, just a little bit of that needs to be repurposed to provide a good space to store dockless mobility that keeps it off the sidewalk and keeps sidewalks accessible. It's interesting that you mentioned kind of the scooter hysteria or kind of backlash. Have have we already started to see that happen at a policy level? Are cities reacting or is it just sort of individual neighbors saying, complaining about scooters being left in front of their lawns? We've seen both. We've seen cities welcome the scooters and really signal that they're open for innovation and see this as a solution to some of the congestion problems and transit problems that cities are having. We've seen other cities come down and literally pick up all the scooters, put them in a big black bag and take them to City Hall. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, Nashville, when the scooters launched there, the, the city 
took them all, put them in City Hall. The City Hall staff workers got caught riding them around while they were impounded. That was going to be my next question. Were they just having fun with them like, in the back rooms? And, you know, waited for these entrepreneurs to come and ask for permission and go through a regulatory process and put very strict restrictions on them. Meanwhile, while all this was going on in Nashville, Memphis said, hey, we'd love to have this here. We think it's a potential great solution. Worked with them to come up with a pretty flexible solution that accomplishes a lot of these issues in terms of like they paint at the curb certain areas and call them bird's nest where you're supposed to <laughs> to leave your scooters. And when the scooters came, city council members were some of the first riders on them. Yeah, there's a big range. But there was also a big range in how governments handled, you know, bike share rollout as well. Um, it's like a little bit hard to remember eight years ago. <laughs> if not the distant when, past. The, just, the, the distant past in terms of transportation technology. Um, but, you know, that it's not just the devices themselves. It's also the infrastructure that goes along with them, right? Like immediately and saying like, oh, you know, there's like we're talking about curb space as soon as we're talking about scooters. We're, you know, we're talking about that physical infrastructure. Like Emily mentioned, like you need to move that space away from stuff. So that's very contested. I mean, space is always very contested in any realm that you're working with. And this especially where people do think it is a given right that they can park in front of their home, even though they don't own that space, is kind of like that, that, that turns into a turf war. So it's not just like the devices themselves, but that like they immediately force like cities to think about like, like they have to, even if they don't want to deal with this question of like who has again access to that kind of space so i would actually say this debate goes back even farther than just the bike shares when the bicycle itself was launched yeah yeah totally. in the, <laughs> yeah. In yeah. the 1800s you saw them banned from central park they were the electric scooters of the day and they had to sue to get bicycle clubs and bicycle manufacturers were suing to prove that their products served a purpose and shouldn't be banned from cities yeah. And then we have, you know, the invention of jaywalking and all of that good stuff. So, yeah. Contested public space. Just manifested <laughs> through scooters. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I, I think that, like, it's been interesting. Like, there's so many different stories. I lived in Cleveland, Ohio for two and a half years. and I, I ran the bike share system there. Um, I moved back to D.C. in July. But a few months after that, I think Lime dropped its scooters overnight. And there was this whole, like, I had a bunch of emails from people. It was I'm glad that people thought of me to ask me questions. But it was really funny because it was like, you know, what if you just let them go? Like, what you know, Cleveland, is unlike D.C., has a ton of space, right? It's an overbuilt city. It was built for a million people. It never even reached that population peak. And now it's 400,000 people and declining. So, like, you have in cities like that, you have a lot of space to actually work you know, with things that are not cars and people who are not driving. And that's a really interesting experiment. Um, so in some ways that space actually should be less contested, but it's not because of like the way that we've entrenched what we think is a normal use of our streets. I'm, I'm glad that we kind of got here very quickly to this like public space debate and how we use it. Because one of the things that I wanted to bring up is we're not just talking, I think you even mentioned this early on, Alex, is we're not just talking about how people get around, but, you know, transportation affects where people live and, you know, the character of neighborhoods and that kind of thing. So I don't think you can have these conversations without talking about sort of land use and zoning and all those fun things. So we don't have to dive too far into that. But again, since I know this is an area where a lot of you have some expertise, I'm, I'm wondering if there are some examples of how cities are changing their zoning laws, either directly because of a new transportation technology or because that transportation technology is changing where people want to live. There have been very few examples of cities doing broad-based upzoning or allowing denser housing to be built than what already exists. But there's definitely a growing recognition that there needs to be more of that, not just to accommodate 
dockless scooters or bikes, but to allow more people to have the choice to live where they want to. Yeah, I would say no one is doing a spectacular job of this. I mean, I I work for an advocacy organization that has a 20-year history of trying to get people to live near where they work or live near the transit that will take them to, you know, where they, you know, where their family is, where they worship, where they work, where they need to run errands, all of that stuff. And that's what smart growth is, right? I I work for the Coalition for Smarter Growth. (laughs) It's right there in the name. Um, And I think that that is really important. And there's a lot of, you know, environmental and moral different reasons why, you know, someone might choose to be a true believer in that. But in terms of actually making those changes, they do tend to be, you know, politically unpopular because they do, again, sort of threaten a norm, right? And single family zoning is the norm of how we conceptualize where people live. And that's very normative to people in the same way that like, Scooters, I think, are like they look deviant, they look weird, <laughs> like that, that, like, and they look silly, right? Like, even I am like, okay, this, is, like, when they rolled out, I was like, okay, scooters are like, this is maybe this is pushing it, but then like people were into it, and I think that like acknowledging that like non-normative ways of getting around, like that there is an appetite for that. I mean, I, I've also I, this is not my first advocacy job. I worked for the Washington Area Bicyclist Association for some time, and we do a similar sort of you know outreach and pushback on existing policies and stuff when we need to. And we get people to submit comments on stuff, and it's very easy to get pro bike, pro public space people to submit comments because people feel very strongly about it. But I have occasionally seen like pushbacks from administrators and politicians who say like, "Oh, it's the bike people that submitted comments," and sort of dismiss that, even though we've sort of shown in the democratic process that we have a lot of voices who are asking for less parking and more bike lanes, or you know, less uh, like you know, less parking and like on street bike corrals, which would also accommodate scooters. So there's demand for that, um, but satisfying that demand means making some hard political choices and people don't like to stick their necks out. So Absolutely. And scooter companies have been on the forefront of offering to help fund bike lanes. Indianapolis, I think, has been the first city to accept funding from Bird and Lime to provide a dollar per scooter per day toward protected bike lanes. So I think that's there's a potential for the politics to shift a little bit as the both the scooter users and the scooter companies are pushing for similar changes. Cars have come up a lot. So I think the next logical thing for us to maybe bring up and chat about is the technological innovations happening with cars. And then you can hear driverless cars or autonomous vehicles. I'll let you guys decide which of those which of those terms of art we use. <laughs> there, there may be a debate between them. I'm not sure. Uh, but when we think about driverless cars, autonomous vehicles, are they a response to this competition for public space where, oh, now we can say goodbye to car culture and no one needs to own a car? Do they exacerbate the challenges of car culture because, well, now urban sprawl is a bigger deal because everyone can get a car to go whenever they need to, wherever they need to? Or is it somewhere maybe in between there? You can't beat geometry, right? Like you're going to have the same problems with autonomous vehicles that you have with current single occupancy vehicles if everybody keeps driving a single occupancy vehicle in a place where there is constrained space, like downtown DC, for example. So, you know, you can't get around that. If you have one person in a vehicle that's taking up the space of a car or even, I guess, a slightly shrunk AV, I don't know, like a car to go that's an AV, I don't know, whatever. But it takes up more space than a bus, than a bike, than somebody on foot. And, you know, they require more infrastructure. They can go further distances. And if you don't think sprawl is a good thing, which I don't, then, like, there's a real reason to be wary that without a substantial change in our ideology, we're just going to end up with the same problems, probably worse, with AVs if they're if they're not approached as, like, yeah, like, this is this is actually something that 
you know, I would actually prefer to disincentivize driving substantially. But if that's not your tack, if you're not even trying to promote other modes of transportation, whether that's through dedicated bus lanes or taking space away from cars to make room for bikes and sort of evening some of that system out, then you're just going to get traffic, but worse forever. So, but, you know, sometimes I fear that that is actually the direction that we're going in. It's a shiny object and it's very hard to get, you know, decision makers away from shiny object syndrome sometimes. <laughs> I don't think that's necessarily where we're going to end up. I think one of the advantages of autonomous vehicles is that you might have people where, yes, they're commuting from farther out, but then they're able to rent out their autonomous vehicle throughout the day to kind of use as an Uber or a ride hail type of service that is going to pick up other people who need to get to other places. And then you're taking away some of that parking necessity. I also think we're seeing, I, I prefer to use autonomous vehicles because it's not just cars. So you can have autonomous buses, you can have autonomous shuttles. And what you're really seeing is a huge potential empowering and life-saving technology on the cusp right now. 94% of automobile accidents are caused by human error. These cars, they don't get drunk, they don't get drowsy, they don't get distracted. And having that potential to save lives and get people where they need to go safely is also going to help these other forms of transportation. They'll be able to recognize bicyclists. They'll be able to recognize people in scooters. These cars are constantly learning. And I think that's what's going to make it such a good thing for the future of transportation. Economists have for quite some time been big on congestion pricing or charging for vehicle miles traveled to account for the variation in gas mileage or electric vehicles that aren't being hit by the gas tax. And I think that it's it's certainly been a politically unpopular of suggestion, but I think it's going to become really essential with autonomous vehicles so that you are incentivizing people to use a ride-sharing model rather than single occupancy autonomous vehicles and so that you don't have autonomous vehicles just circling around downtown all day or something with with no one in them. We really need congestion pricing, not just on highways, but also in urban areas to be prepared for autonomous vehicles in cities, I think. There's also if a single occupancy AV is the easiest thing for someone to take, which if we replaced everybody's cars right now with AVs, which is, I actually think they're further off than a lot of the estimates are saying. But that said, you know, if we were to do that overnight, those are still the easiest option. Everyone takes it. And then we, that's what I mean is that this future is not like that. It's, it is worse, right? Because that becomes the easiest thing for somebody to take. You run into this with why do people take bike share? Why do people take scooters? Because it is their easiest option at that given time. So if you want a future where people are not getting into a single occupancy AV. It may look like congestion pricing. It may look like physically changing streets. It may be saying, like, you can't sprawl this far. You can't do this. You can't do that. That, again, is disincentivizing that. But you could also incentivize some other stuff if you would like. So it's just changing those levels. But, you know, I would say that this goes back to my sort of, like, user-focused thing, is that we can talk all we want about whether or not it's a good thing. And it is a really good thing that people won't drive drunk. Although I would say that I would like more frequent and reliable bus and train service to help on that as well. That, like, for someone, like, they don't really care about what we're talking about. They care, like, when they walk out of their house, like, is the train coming in five minutes? Or is it coming in 20 minutes and I'm going to call a car instead? So that's, like, what, like, people are dealing with, like, on just like a day-to-day basis. And, you know, maybe somebody walks out of their house and there's a bike share station there, but it's raining, but the bus isn't coming, but Metro's coming in five minutes, so they're going to take that. So that's more of that decision tree that you get with like a real-life scenario, regardless of like how we regulate or what we say 
is good or bad. So when you're trying to shift that and change that, if that is of interest, then, you know, shifting and changing that real life scenario is is that's to me the really interesting piece. So I think to that point, one of the things we're seeing is a change in view of transportation as an ecosystem. So now when people have that scenario where the bike docks right there, it's raining, I have five minutes until the bus or I can walk, they're actually taking the time to make that choice and weighing pros and cons with price and options. And that's been one of the real benefits we've seen of transportation innovation recently is that we're seeing, particularly in urban areas, more options there. And we're only going to see this kind of continue to grow as we start to see things like autonomous vehicles and eVTOL flying taxis that <laughs> you know are coming at some point, <laughs> point and have more options regarding how do I get from point A to point B, depending on how far I'm going, depending on what's available right now. And I think that's also where the dockless element can really come in handy of I'm no longer torn, no longer, you know, do I have to be right where the docked bike share is if I want to use that? Or can I pick this bike up, ride it where I need to go and leave it there and let whoever needs to ride it somewhere else pick it up then? Yeah, the user benefit for dockless and for scooters is really, really substantial compared to docked bike share. Like I know that personally, like trips that I take, like, you know, sometimes if they, you know, if I'm starting somewhere at a bike share station, but the drop off bike share station is the same distance from where, you know, a, a metro station is or a bus stop is like I'm probably not going to take bike share and I've been a bike commuter for the past decade so like <laughs> um so like that that is like you know again that sort of decision thing but back to that like user focus is that like it kind of doesn't we run into this with you know vision zero a lot with like one of the tenants of vision zero being education and outreach and stuff like that and you can educate and outreach all you would like but people's decisions are usually determined by infrastructure and the environment that they're in so you know it is like I, I think you're going to, you know, as these things become more relevant to users and they're on demand and people feel like they have a little bit more control over that, like that changes that narrative substantially. So longtime listeners will know that around this time in every episode, I like to to do my best to make sure that what we're left with is something like optimistic or forward thinking or actionable. Sometimes that's easier than other subjects. I think with technology being kind of the undertone here, we're actually in a good spot. Um, so this is, you can kind of think of this as a freebie question, but whether it's a technological development or a potential policy change, maybe put on your radical but feasible hat and thinking, okay, in a, in a really optimistic sense, but one that still could happen, what are you all as experts in this area most looking forward to, right? So if, if things go well, if, you know, policymakers are paying attention to the work that you all are doing, what different world would you all like to see within, you know, the next five to 10 years or so? What's, what's kind of possible in this space? I would say two goals. One, much, much safer streets where pedestrian and cyclist and vehicle deaths are way, way, way down from their crazy levels that they're at right now. And also more options for personal finance when it comes to transportation, people not needing to own cars who might feel that they need to today and being able to control their, their spending and their choices on transportation. I think in the cities, it looks a lot like a lot more variety and micromobility, a lot more kind of innovation and entrepreneurship. So we, as we've talked about earlier, we start with the dockless bikes. Now we have the dockless scooters. There are developments involving dockless mopeds and even dockless mini electric vehicles, they say, are on the rise. So, you know, I think that that's what's going to happen next in the cities. In the rural areas and in the suburbs, I think the growth of autonomous vehicles and some of the autonomous shuttle services that are going to be able to bring, say, store goods to people 
are probably the next thing that I'm most excited about. So I'm like a total bummer. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh no, we should have led with you. <laughs> okay, sorry. Um, yeah, no. I um, so I, I think that you know I I really would love to see you know frequent and reliable transit that takes people where they need to go. I don't really care what that looks like. I do care that it does not perpetuate sprawl. You know, personally. And I would say that, you know, the hopeful piece of this, like part one, is that we have a huge opportunity to do that. Um, you know, I've made this argument over and over and over again, is that dockless should sort of force a referendum on who we say our streets are for. Because right now, our streets are not working super well because people die on them all of the time. And that's awful. So I would say that, you know, the hopeful point is that like, okay, there's like this thing here that is really clearly showing demand and someone should just take it and run with it. We have a climate imperative. We have health imperatives. Most cities have their own goals that at the very least, they probably paid a consultant to work on. And it would be nice if they tried to move towards them. (laughs) Just to maybe like, um, you know, say that somebody is building out something like, you know, DC's like climate goals, which call for, I believe, a 25% mode share for, you know, biking and walking by 2020 something, which is really soon. And we're not anywhere near that. Um, So, you know, you have all these factors in line. It's a huge opportunity to take it and run with it and say that, like, okay, this is how we treat cities in the U.S. now for, for people and for the users of these systems. Um, I'm not optimistic that that's actually going to happen because of that political challenge and that it is, you know, really difficult, you know, shiny object syndrome technology. It's very attractive and stuff. And I would love to see that actually like push this stuff over the hill. And I'm I'm really worried that it won't. And that this moment, which is actually a really cool and really interesting moment, at least, you know, more cool and more interesting than I've seen in my career. And I've been working with bike stuff for my career. That would be super awesome. And I would really love for it to happen. But I am really worried that it's not just because it does require saying, like, we have to reshift the way that we think about this stuff. You can't expect to park in front of your house on a street that you don't own. Like, that's just... That can't be the default going forward if we're going to do any of the like super awesome stuff that this has offered to us or that access in itself becomes segregated, which is something that I personally don't want to see perpetuated at all. So with that, I think we need to wrap up uh, because I know Alex needs to get back to her office in something like 30 minutes. And since we don't have those driverless (laughs) helicopter taxis, uh, that means crossing a river with a limited number of bridges, which means all that traffic we were just talking about. Uh, So I rode the orange line. It was lovely. Oh, there you go. Perfect. Um, So I I always, again, like to finish these up with just kind of going around the table and giving our listeners a place to keep up with you all online, follow the work that you're doing or or whatever projects you're working on. So that can be a, a website, a Twitter handles, something like that. So uh, we'll just start with Alex. If there's some place you'd like to direct our listeners to learn more about the work that uh, that you're doing. Two spots. My personal Twitter account is Alex Baca. It is my name spelled out. And you can also go to smartergrowth.net and learn more about the organization that I work for. We think about this stuff every day and it's super cool. In addition to my work here at Mercatus, I write for the blog marketurbanism.com and I'm on Twitter at EBW Hamilton. And Jennifer? So again, in addition to Mercatus's website, I'm on Twitter at J.R. Huddles. I also blog at Tech Liberation Front. And as always, you can find me on Twitter at Chad M. Reese, all one word, or email me at crease at mercatus.gmu.edu with any questions, comments, or episode ideas. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.